Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. When you have anxiety or chronic depression, your mind is constantly going. And I tried opiates and realized that my brain was just quiet for a little bit. That's the voice of Abby. She's one of thousands of New Englanders who've struggled with addiction. She and others are sharing their stories as part of a writing project and podcast. It's meant to shine a light on the problem and the ways out. This week on Next, from the New England News Collaborative, a first-person account of addiction and recovery. We'll also look at food insecurity among Vermont's farm workers. People would say, well, sure, I have the money, but let me tell you about all of the challenges that I experienced going to the store and finding the food that's meaningful to me or finding the time in between the shifts that I'm working on a dairy farm to access some of these foods. Plus, who's behind our bicycling infrastructure? You realize they were written by men sitting around a table deciding what worked for them as vehicular bicyclists, and then that would go to the states, and the states would build what those men sitting around a table decided was working for them. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us. We've been following the struggles and successes of farmers in our region. A new focus on organic, locally grown food has led to a boom in farm stand and foodie culture. But the hard economic realities of milk production in the region have meant the closures of hundreds of farms over the last decade. That's hit the state of Vermont especially hard. There's another problem, though, that's not as easy to see from the outside. The people who do this hard work on the farms often aren't able to get food easily. That food insecurity is a problem with many causes, but immigration policy is right at the center. Teresa Mayers dives into this issue in her book called Life on the Other Border, Farm Workers and Food Justice in Vermont. She's a professor at the University of Vermont, and she's with us now. Teresa, welcome to Next. Thank you so much. So we've got a pretty good idea in our heads of what Vermont's farming industry is like, but maybe you can tell us a bit more. What does the industry mean for the state's economy, first of all? Yeah, absolutely. So the dairy industry is really important here. Of all of the states in the nation, Vermont is the state that has the most dependency upon one agricultural commodity, and that that commodity is milk. So right now, um, Vermont's dairies accounts for about 6,000 to 7,000 jobs in the state, provides about $360 million in wages and salaries, and about 80% of the state's farmland is dedicated to dairy production, whether it's for pastures or for growing feed crops or for the dairies themselves. And so um, dairy is very important for the state of Vermont, both culturally, but also economically, politically, and socially. It's a, it's a huge part of the state. It's a huge part of the identity as well as the economy. What's the workforce for the industry like right now? Yes, absolutely. So um, part of it is dependent upon the size of the dairy. Um, One of the things that I look specifically at is the experiences of Latino migrant farm workers in the state, um, which tend to be working on some of the larger dairies, but not exclusively. And so the labor challenges have been really significant in dairy for a very long time. But beginning in about the late 1990s, what we started seeing in the state was the growing importance of Latino farm workers for uh, maintaining the dairy industry, particularly the large production that we currently see now. I'm wondering if you have an, an idea how many of these workers are documented, how many are undocumented currently? 
Yeah, so currently there's an estimate of about 1,000 to 1,200 Latino farm workers in the state, according to uh, University of Vermont Extension. And it's estimated that probably 90% of those are here without documents. Um, One of the key things is that because the dairy industry is year-round work, workers in dairy cannot qualify for some of the other agricultural visa programs like the H-2A visa program. And so um, within the Latino immigrant farm worker community, the majority of those are undocumented. When we talk about workers who come to work in the dairy industry here, because it's a year-round industry, does it mean that people come from outside the country, work here, and then stay here for years on end? Oftentimes, yeah. And one of the big changes that's happened, especially since uh, September 11th, and especially since we've seen a really um, sort of growing militarization and level of violence along the U.S.-Mexico border, um, many people sort of talk about how 9-11 resulted in people being stuck in the United States, where we might have seen more circular migration previously, because that process of crossing into the United States has gotten so risky and so dangerous and so expensive. A lot of times that has resulted in people staying here often for longer than they originally planned. And so, yeah, a number of the individuals that I've been working with have been working not only in Vermont, but have often moved um, back and forth between uh, New York and other parts of the United States and have been here often for years on end. What is life like for these folks who live uh, for sometimes years, sometimes for months on end on a dairy farm in Vermont? Maybe you can paint us a picture if you would. Yeah, I don't think it's really easy to generalize that because I think it depends a lot on the particular farm that people are working on, um, their level of social connection, where they're living in the state, their experiences of whether they're here with their family or whether they're here alone. So I don't think there's really a way to generalize it. But I often think about the story of a friend of mine named Juana, I'm using a pseudonym there, who came to Vermont to join her husband and who um, eventually did find work on um, a dairy farm, although um, wasn't necessarily a full-time worker. And she had two children that were born in the United States, two children that were born in Mexico and remained in Mexico. And her life was definitely difficult. She came from the state of Chiapas. Her family, they are coffee growers. And one of the things that she described to me is that her life back home was was a hard one. It was one of poverty. It was one of instability. Um, But she often compared it to her life in Vermont. And she would say, well, I have more money here, but I don't have the freedom here. One of the things that farm workers experience often is a level of fear and anxiety about leaving the home or leaving the farm. And she certainly had that fear. Um, her older son, who did come to work here in Vermont shortly after he, he moved here to work in the dairy industry, was detained while he was out shopping for party supplies. And so uh, that added to some of the um, difficulties that Juana was experiencing. Eventually, she did return to Chiapas because of some family tragedy and some of family loss. But she, I think the thing that I always remember about her story and about her experiences is she compared the, the sort of poverty and freedom in Mexico, but relative wealth and lack of freedom here in the United States. And that lack of freedom comes in large part because almost the entirety of Vermont is within this 100-mile this zone away from borders of the United States, which means that Customs and Border Protection is able to operate much more freely is that part of of what is is leading to Juana and others their their fear of going outside, going out into public? Absolutely, yeah, that's part of it. The other part is that Vermont is one of the least ethnically diverse states in the country. Um, sometimes we're number one, sometimes we're number two, but because it is a it is a state where 
people of color are often very visible, um, especially in rural areas. That adds to some of the anxieties and fears of being out in public. Um, so that coupled with the fact that we are a border state and um, 100 miles, which is a big chunk of the state, and especially a big chunk of where we see dairy farms is within that 100-mile border. Um, that adds to a, a series and sort of a complications of events that um, leave people often very fearful of leaving the home. Yeah, and there's some real impacts for these people. Uh, our reporter at VPR, John Dillon, has been doing a lot of coverage around this issue. He spoke with a farm worker named Olga, and here's a clip of her. She's speaking through an interpreter here. So she said that uh, there were plenty of occasions she needed to call an ambulance for an emergency. She heard that even the police is turning people to immigration, and that could, you know, if she calls for an emergency, maybe police is going to be involved. So she's been really afraid, and at her household, everybody's been afraid to reach out to an ambulance or to the hospital or the police. Uh, Teresa, I'm wondering if, if you can line up what Olga has said there with some of your experiences, some of the, the people that you've you've talked to. Is that a lot of what you're hearing? Absolutely, yeah, and I um, I know her story pretty well. <laughs> so, yeah, whether it's access to health care, whether it's access to emergency medical services, whether it's going to church, whether it's getting food, all of the ways that we sort of go out of our homes on a daily basis, whether, you know, it's for basic needs or for, you know, more pleasurable activities, um, all of those choices and those needs are definitely different for Vermont's farm worker community. So, of course, there's the fear of going out. You may be worried about uh, police or border protection. But w- what you're writing about in your book largely is is this worry about, about food security. So before we get into some details, I'm wondering why you, you picked this topic to, to focus on with all the other struggles that, <laughs> that people have in their lives. Why is food security so central to this story? I'm a food anthropologist, so I study food and have been doing so within um, immigrant communities um, from the time I was a graduate student in Seattle. And I think food for me just offers one particularly important way to look at people's connections with their culture, with the environment, with their families, with their religion. Um, You can look at economic issues or political issues or social issues through food. And one of the things that I've long been sort of troubled by is the fact that workers in our food system, whether it's farm workers or whether it's restaurant workers or school cafeteria workers, we often see high rates of food insecurity within food workers in the country. And that includes farmers. There's a higher than average uh, percentage of farmers also that are experiencing food shortages. And so to me, that really indicates that there's something sort of fundamentally wrong in our food system, where those individuals who are ensuring that, you know, those of us who are food secure are food secure. When they're experiencing the food insecurity in their own homes, that that to me indicates a big contradiction. And do you have some, some hard numbers or at least guesses as to how many of the farm workers who are in that state working uh, documented or undocumented actually are considered food insecure? Yeah, so part of the research that goes into this book is based both on um, my administering um, something called the U.S. Household Food Security Survey Module, which is a USDA tool that is used to understand household food security in the United States, as well as um, more in-depth qualitative interviews. I'm an anthropologist, and I like to talk to people um, for a long time, (laughs) especially about some of these topics. 
And so the food security surveys that I conducted with 100 farm workers in the state indicated that about 18% of farm worker households are food insecure, and that compares with about 10% for the Vermont average. I think the problem, though, is that those numbers fall short in really capturing the complexity of food access and capturing some of the more lived realities of food security. And so while that number is even, you know, even though it's elevated compared to the overall Vermont average, I think it's a huge underestimate. And part of it is because that instrument is really indicating that based on this assumption that if you have access to money, you have access to food. And as I was doing these surveys and I would get through the questions, it's a fairly quick instrument to use, people would say, well, sure, I have the money, but let me tell you about all of the challenges that I get or that I experience going to the store and finding the food that's meaningful to me or finding the time in between the shifts that I'm working on a dairy farm to access some of these foods. And so while you know the hard data shows 18%, if we look at some of the qualitative data that I would have um, from this project, I would estimate that, you know, nearly everyone is facing some kind of food access barrier. And so, um, again, I think that points to some of the realities that individuals are experiencing here in Vermont and also some of the sort of really complicated matters that we can think about when we think about food security. Teresa Mayers is author of a new book called Life on the Other Border, Farm Workers and Food Justice in Vermont. She's also an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Vermont. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Coming up, a firsthand account of addiction and recovery. But first, we'll go gravel grinding and skateboard down a giant hill. From the New England News Collaborative, it's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. All right, so over the next few minutes, we're going to get moving pretty fast, so hang on. First, let's get into the woods. Ever go on a hike and find an unmarked path veering off a trail? Well, some of these are so-called pirate trails carved by mountain bikers. It's one part of a confusing infrastructure that's been built over time with a history of pitting insider advocates from different camps against landowners, forest managers, urban planners, and others who just want to jump on their bike and go to work. That's what NHPR's Outside In podcast looked at in two recent episodes, Rake and Ride and Stay in Your Lane. They found something pretty interesting. Both mountain biking and road biking infrastructure were shaped by competitive cyclists, and this has important implications for those who participate in the sports now and who will in the future. Sam Evans-Brown is the host of Outside In, and he's back with us to walk us through these issues. Sam, welcome back to Next. Thank you so much for having me, John. Well, let's start with mountain biking. And in a recent episode of Outside In, you track the history of so-called pirate trails. Why don't you explain what pirate trails are? Well, pirate trails is, you know, is my term that I prefer, but I've heard them called rogue trails. Some people just call them uh, non-sanctioned or illegal trails. Uh, they're, they're trails that are built 
without the consent of the landowner who is hosting them. And so we see them basically everywhere. There, There's a, a little network of pirate trails in a plot of woods behind the hospital here in Concord that, that I came to know as soon as I moved to town. Um, and they snake their way through the White Mountain National Forest. They're, uh, you know, I, I once went down to visit a friend who lived in central Massachusetts outside of Worcester uh, when he had just bought a mountain bike. And it took me, you know, not... 15 minutes to find a network of pirate mountain bike trails that were only about a 10-minute ride from his house. So they are trails that have been built without permission, and they are, they are literally everywhere in New England. How did they come to be? I mean, who built these trails? Who cut them through the woods? Well, they were built by mountain bikers who, in the early days of mountain biking, so if we think of the the 1980s when the first mountain bikes came out, there weren't really trails that had been purpose-built for for mountain bikes. So people were taking them, taking the, the bikes out onto forest roads, out onto Class 6 roads, out onto logging roads. Um, and they started to look for places to ride the bikes that would be a little more interesting than just, you know, a straight stretch of, of skitter road. Uh, and so they started to build trails for themselves. Um, and because of the people who were building them, that was the character of the trails themselves. So I spoke, for instance, to, to Dave Harkless, who's a bike shop owner in Littleton, New Hampshire, who has been involved in the sport since the very beginning. And they're tight, they're twisty, they're extremely technical. You could have 24 inches between the trees. There's still some trails like that around here, and we call them skinnies, and it can be extremely frustrating. Uh, if somebody's looking to get into riding, and this is their first experience, they're going to have to be a very determined person to be successful. What is the role of competition in all of this? Because I can imagine that there's a there's a difference in people's minds in this community between going out for a ride on a weekend and feeling as though there's there's some sort of a, a larger competitive culture of mountain biking in the woods. Am, am I right in that? Well, yeah, and I think I think you've really you've really hit it because they're the early adopters of these sports were very competitive individuals, and they were the same people who were doing mountain bike racing. And I think they really came to trail building through that frame. They thought of what trails do I like riding on? What trails will polish my skills as a racer? Um, you know, what trails should other racers be riding on? And they weren't thinking, you know, what trails would we need if we wanted to make this a more inclusive and accepting sport? What trails would we need if we wanted to maximize the number of people getting outside and, and getting on bicycles in the woods? Um, and, and, and frankly, that's something that I think you see in, in road cycling as well. Yeah. So tell us about that. So the culture of road cycling is a little bit different. And you go into the, the history of how road biking infrastructure and culture developed. Tell us a bit about that. Right. So this is this is another episode that we did back in the spring, and we called it uh, Stay in Your Lane. And it centers on this paradox that I have encountered throughout my adult life, where you hear again and again from city planners that the the people who come to town meetings and, and city council meetings and pound on the table and, and speak about cycling infrastructure are often cyclists who oppose bike lanes. And it was sort of trying to figure this one out because it it seemed paradoxical. It seemed like it didn't make any sense. And when you go back, what you find is that in the early days of, of road cycling, there was a school of thought called vehicular cycling. And it was it was advanced by a few key individuals. But in, in the United States, it was an individual named John Forrester who lived in California. And the idea was that the most effective, the safest way and the fastest way to ride a bicycle was just to 
to act exactly as if you were a car in traffic, to ride in the middle of the lane, to follow all rules of, of the road just as if you were a car, and to assert your, your right to be there. It comes from these competitive cycling clubs, clubs that were producing racers to, to go and compete in, in amateur races around their regions. And they're, they're folks who, who were very keen on going very fast and weren't afraid of being out in traffic. They were, they were willing to put their bodies in harm's way. So John Forster believed that in the United States, what we have is a car-centric culture, and he refers to that as motordom. Uh, and, and he believes that cyclists who are demanding bike lanes have been sort of infected by this car-centric mentality and actually are advocating a, against their own best interests by asking for bike lanes. Motordom doesn't have to say anything anymore because the bicycle activists, environmentalists and whomever you like, anti-motoring people, they want side paths because that's what the ignorant people want. And when I say ignorant, I mean it. The people who don't understand. Sam, this is so interesting, and and it's fascinating to me because I'm not part of any of these cultures. I I ride a bike a couple times a a year, and I don't have a, a strong feeling about this culture. But what I do know about being on a bicycle is that I'm not a car. I'm not surrounded by all this metal. I I want to be protected from all of this danger that's around me. And listening to what he just says there, it scares the hell out of me. It makes me think, who who could possibly think I'm going to act like a car and I'm dumb to want a, a safe bicycle lane? Well, uh, you know, who could think that is is a a tiny fraction of 1% of the population, (laughs) which are the number of people who are actually willing to put their bodies in harm's way. Uh, And and that, I think, is the disconnect, is where you have these competitive cyclists who have learned to operate relatively safely out in the lane, uh, in part because they're able to go quite fast. They're able to go, you know, know, approaching 20, 25 miles an hour on on an open stretch. Uh, And so cars are perhaps more willing to give them a bit of space. I I really was trying to understand John Forrester's perspective, but I think unfortunately what it really comes down to is the current system works for me and I prefer it to the idea of having to ride in a bike lane where I might have to ride a little bit slower in, in order to be safe. And, you know, what he did with that is that he he went out and began to advocate against any engineering standards that said that bicycle lanes were the preferred way to keep cyclists safe. And he did this through something called AASHTO, which is the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. And they, they write these guidelines that your city engineer will look to when he or she designs, uh, you know, any transportation infrastructure. And this, this is a story that was laid out to me by a researcher named Ann Lusk, who is with the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. So when you track the Ashto guidelines back for bicycle facilities and you realize they were written by men sitting around a table deciding what worked for them as vehicular bicyclists, and then that would go to the states and the states would build what those men sitting around a table decided was working for them, what we ended up with was decades of bicycle facilities that were essentially designed by John Forrester because he wrote the first Ashto guidelines. So we've learned about the pirate trails, and we've learned about the culture of, of biking like a car or using bike lanes. Talk about what's excluded in these couple of cultures that, that you've looked at. Well, what's excluded is 
inexperienced riders. What's excluded is people who aren't able to go fast, who aren't able to go over rocks and boulders and logs and over extremely technical trails, the, the type that you find in, in, on these, these pirate mountain bike trail networks. And that means, you know, that means a couple things. It means that for, for years, mountain biking has struggled to find new adherence. It, the growth of the sport sort of leveled off after the 90s. Uh, and it's only been recently with the construction of new trail networks that include trails for beginners that the sport has begun to grow again. But then, you know, I, I actually think the, the implications are more extreme in road biking where there are folks who don't ride bikes it, you know, for exercise. They're riding it for transportation. And the fact that there are inexperienced riders out on the road trying to just get to work and they don't have a safe place to take their bikes is, I think, a direct consequence of the fact that uh, we have had competitive cyclists pushing for infrastructure that works for them for decades. Sam Evans-Brown is the host of Outside In. You can find links to the two episodes that we're talking about here, Rake and Ride and Stay in Your Lane, at nextnewengland.org. Sam, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on to talk about Bikes, Bikes, Bikes. In Vermont's Northeast Kingdom, the mountain bike trail network has been expanded as a way to boost tourism. But now there's a growing trend in cycling that's using the already existing infrastructure of our rural woodlands, gravel roads. That seems a bit bumpy. VPR's Bela Metzger took us to the first big gravel bike race of the season, which was back in May. Some 20 miles into the Rasputitsa gravel race, on an unpaved road deep in the woods of the Northeast Kingdom, cyclists have already been through a lot. We've been uh, rained on, wet snowed on, seems like it's hovering just above freezing in places, but uh, it's uh, not in a bad day for riding a bike. That's John Doyle from Watertown, Massachusetts. You have a bigger smile than most people who are coming through right now. I guess I have some sort of problem where uh, where I, I smile really big, kind of no matter what the circumstances. Way of coping, I guess. <laughs> These tough conditions don't seem like they'd be pleasant to bike in, but they're actually part of the draw. The word Rasputitsa is Russian for the season when thawing snow makes unpaved roads difficult to pass. Here in Vermont, we call that mud season. 1,100 cyclists from around the world are in Burke to ride more than 40 miles of rural unpaved roads. The Rasputitsa website promises a, quote, insane, drop to your knees and cry, suffer fest. It is about challenging yourself. Of course, the course is hard, but also with the weather, the conditions, and yeah, it's pretty hardcore, but it's also really doable. Allison Tetrick is a pro rider from California. She's raced bikes around the world. And she says the Northeast Kingdom is world class. It's longer to get here from where I live than to go to Europe or a lot of places in the world. I mean, we're in a very remote location, but to me that makes it very special. It is beautiful out here and um, really tranquil, a lot of open space and really drastic landscapes and super bike friendly. Gravel cycling is a cross between road biking and mountain biking. Riders are decked out in spandex and ride fast bikes like you might see in the Tour de France. But their bikes have fatter tires, which allow them to navigate unpaved, rutted roads. Gravel grinding, as it's called by insiders, is all about getting out into nature for adventure. And it's one of the fastest growing categories in cycling. Vermont is perfect for it. More than half of the state's roads are unpaved, and more than 6,000 miles of that is gravel. We didn't invent anything here. What we did is basically hone it to 
this one activity of riding on public dirt roads. That's Peter Vollers. He's been an advocate for gravel cycling in Vermont for almost 20 years. Vollers says he first saw the potential of gravel when he was coaching young riders in Killington. We discovered when we were training how dangerous it was to be on the pavement. So I just one day I just said, guys, take a right turn. That turn onto a gravel road allowed the inexperienced riders to train away from cars and made their rides more social and enjoyable. Vollers says Vermont's early infrastructural development, which included a dense network of rural roads, makes it perfect for gravel riding, especially the state's Class 4 roads, town highways that are no longer maintained. The oldest of these roads dates back to the beginning of the state. And another name for that in Vermont is the ancient roads. So these are mostly roads that have were laid out sometime in the early 1800s, but they fell into less use over time, so the towns didn't want to maintain them. And almost every town of Vermont has these roads. In 2006, the Vermont legislature passed Act 178, which required towns to map ancient roads for the first time. The maps have made outdoor enthusiasts more aware of access points to the backcountry. The Rasputitsa race has more than tripled in riders since it started six years ago. Co-founder Anthony Mocha says it's not a moneymaker, but it's a passion project that he hopes spills into the whole community. Skiing is all, all over. The mountain biking itself hasn't quite picked up yet, so it's a, a really in-between type of season. And in a weekend, there's nothing else going on. We bring in a bunch of people. It helps. This is actually a race that we look forward to pretty much all winter long. You know, it's like, you know, here it comes, here it comes, because it's just a huge boom. Johnny and Linda Lottie own Cafe Lottie, a big, airy coffee shop in East Burke. They say Rasputitsa weekend brings in as much revenue as an entire month during the off-season. Considering that it's April and there's nothing else going on, I think it's phenomenal what they've done to be able to promote this. I mean, it's really good for our economy. The Northeast Kingdom is already internationally known for its mountain biking. The Kingdom Trail Network drew 140,000 visitors in 2018. And now Burke area officials are in discussions about developing gravel cycling events at different times of year. Back at the Rasputitsa race, Melissa Kelstrom from Virginia rolls over the finish line almost four hours after the start. She's greeted by her boyfriend. Hi. Mwah. Now I'm ready to cry. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good. So I'm awesome. so happy for you. Yeah. The race conditions were so tough this year, 200 riders didn't finish. Kelstrom is covered in mud. Gravel makes my heart happy. Why? <laughs> Everybody just crushed the course, we all died, and then we came out here and we're still smiling. She already plans to register for next year's race. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Bela Metzger. The next group of racers need a smoother track. More than 60 downhill skateboarders from as far as Spain, Australia, and Mexico convened in June in Florida, Massachusetts. That's in northern Berkshire County. They came to the quiet town for just one reason. Speed. New England Public Radio's Ben James has our story. At the top of Whitcomb Hill Road in Florida, Mass., right off the highest point on Route 2, there's a sign that Jeff Malangoski has been contemplating for years. It's a road grade sign, and it says 9.5% grade for the next 2.5 miles. <laughs> so. When workers carved this outrageously steep road out of the mountain, 
none of them could have pictured the skateboarding event that Malangoski would host here in June of 2019. It's the first ever Whitcomb Summit downhill. It's well over 65 miles an hour. Like probably lower 70s, upper 60s. It's weird to say, but it's a mellow 70 miles an hour. A mellow 70. Just what Malangoski from Ashfield, Massachusetts is after. My son called me at work three years ago. He, he calls up and he goes, you're not going to believe it. Whitcomb got paved top to bottom. And, it, and uh, it, so it was just amazing. And we started skating it right away. Malangoski is 54 years old. His son Ryder is 20. We used to skate it open all the time. He means the cars were going up the hill while they were skating down. And then uh, eventually, uh, eventually the cops started coming every time we came. So we decided to go to the town and ask them for, uh, for one weekend to just really live it up. And they gave it to us. My name's Emily Pross. I'm 23 years old. And I'm a four-time women's downhill skateboarding world champion. Uh, it's... Definitely the fastest racetrack that I've skated for sure. Man, that was freaking killer. They were going wicked fast, I'll tell you what. (laughs) Matt Cook and Mike Walker drove out from North Adams to watch the race. We got a full leather uh, suit going on, skin tight to make them be able to go fast and all that. And then they got stormtrooper helmets on, (laughs) and it's freaking awesome. Max Caps, a racer, is 29 from Southern California. Yesterday morning I was terrified, and by the end of the day I finally had it figured out. Now I'm like, I can race this. Yesterday I didn't feel like I could race this. Caps is skating Whitcomb with his teammate, Tim Del Rosario Rojas, who says when he's riding well, the experience is actually calming. Definitely you find like a, a place of meditation is what I'd call it. Like you're really like the stillest point that you can find is when you're on the board. That's true for some skaters at least. The Malangoskis lined the course with 1,500 hay bales, crucial for spots like this one, called the left slide. Between runs, they open the road to waiting traffic. A few trucks and motorcycles go by, the acrid smell of their burning brakes mixing with marijuana fumes and the odor of sizzling burgers. The guy flipping the burgers is Mike Gleason, the fire chief. Fire and rescue. Gleason says he totally supports closing the road for this event. Also, they're nuts. Yeah, they're absolutely crazy. I I wouldn't do it. A quick break, and then the skaters pack themselves standing into two U-Hauls, back to the top for their next run. I have to continue until I die, basically. Which is uh, well, it's not too far down the line. I'm at 57, so... Oldest Tretmanis from Mexico is a board member for the International Downhill Federation. He blew out three vertebrae skating bowls back in his 40s, and now he rides downhill, he says, because it makes his back feel better. It's partly up to him whether this race will become a sanctioned IDF event starting next year. I'm the guy in charge of safety and event management, yeah. A dislocated shoulder, sprained ankle, some deep road rash. Among 60-odd skaters, these are the worst of the reported injuries. EMTs have already checked skater Norman Plant by the time Ryder Malangoski spots him. Norm, no! What happened? He's got bandages on his knees. His pants are off, and there's a ragged hole through his boxers at the left butt cheek. Dude, oh, we... That's going to hurt a lot. Last skater is dropping, followed by two U-Hauls. Course is about to be hot! Get off the road! The championship race. Among the four finalists are teammates Max Caps and Tim Del Rosario Rojas. Go ahead, hit a 
Ryder Malangoski's in the mix, congratulating the winner. You can tell he's just incredibly pleased this race, put together with his dad, has gone off without a hitch. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ben James. Coming up, we'll hear about a Vermont woman's journey to recovery. From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. When you have anxiety or chronic depression, your mind is constantly going. And I tried opiates and realized that my brain was just quiet for a little bit. It was like a vacation from my brain. That's the voice of Abby Holden. She recorded an interview with Writers for Recovery and Vermont Public Radio, where she talked about her addiction and her path to recovery as part of a new podcast series called My Heart Still Beats. In the interview, she speaks with Gary Miller. He's creative director for Writers for Recovery and co-host of the program. Let's listen. I was 17 my senior year of high school, and I had my wisdom teeth taken out. It was really before the opiate crisis had started, so I remember being prescribed like your typical antibiotic and then two different types of narcotics to treat my pain for my wisdom teeth. The problem that I was encountering was that every time I took it orally, I would get sick and start vomiting and I didn't want my stitches to rip. And then I think somebody at school just suggested, well, if you just crush it up and snort it, then you won't have to deal with being sick, but it'll still treat your pain. And so once I learned that trick, it was just kind of off and running. (laughs) So I was okay with the pill circuit. I felt like, you know, because it was a pharmaceutical, it was safer. I wasn't going to get hurt doing this. Then I found I had this like restlessness and was struggling with abusing other substances and was kind of, I had always told myself over and over again that I won't go near heroin because it's dangerous and I know I'll like it. And actually ended relationships because people were dealing with heroin or had it in their life and then had a very close person in my life try it and I was furious. I was really angry at them. I remember crying and begging them like, please don't do this, da 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 da. And then about two weeks later, I called him and said, you know, maybe you're right. I don't want to be afraid of this anymore. And I tried it and sure enough, I loved it. Abby knew heroin was dangerous and addictive, but she had a system that she thought would keep her safe. I was never a daily user, so a lot of people I I found didn't consider me an addict because I didn't look like one, but it was clockwork. It was every two weeks, the second I got paid, I knew exactly how much was going to go to drugs. And I usually tried to space out what I bought so that it would 
get me at least most of the way through every two weeks, but I guess I was unlucky in the fact that I was told very early on by someone I knew who used that, oh, well, if you don't do it more than three days in a row, then you'll never have to deal with feeling a withdrawal. So I, from the very beginning, had a set cycle for myself where I would use for two days, take two days off, use for two days, take two days off. And it made it a lot easier for me to look like on the outside that everything was fine. Everything wasn't fine for Abby. She knew she needed to get away from heroin, but she just couldn't seem to. I would get, you know, a month clean, two months clean, three months clean, and then usually right around three months I would nosedive. And it happened over and over and over again. It was June of 2016, and I was about to celebrate one year clean from heroin. And I just reached this point in my life where I now felt like even when I was clean and I was doing all the right things, that things weren't getting better. And I was just kind of over it. I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to put in the effort And I disclosed to a friend of mine that I was going to buy a bunch of heroin and intentionally OD. And she drove to my house and picked me up and then proceeded to sit with me in the ER for 12 and a half hours until they could get me transport to the Brattleboro Retreat. And how did your dad respond to your hospitalization? Um, He's a police officer. And so where was he and how did you guys interact through your whole active addiction? For the most part, in my active addiction, I didn't interact with my father. I never wanted him to see me and know that I was high. My father's reputation and his integrity was always very important to me. So I tried to just keep the pieces of me that I knew he wouldn't like as far out of his vision as possible. It's still obviously a very difficult topic for him to talk about or hear about. But we've come a really long way, and I'm at a point now where if I am really unsafe or I'm feeling really triggered or I'm feeling like I might go do something that I don't want to do, I can walk down to my dad's house and say, Dad, I know you don't like it, but this is where I'm at. And he might say, yeah, you're right, I don't like it, but what do you need from me? That is so beyond what I ever thought a parent could do for their child. And I'm incredibly lucky that I have the dad that I do. Abby continued to struggle with her sobriety. The turning point came in February 2018 when her boyfriend died of an overdose at age 29. It was Valentine's Day. And one of my roommate at the time, her boyfriend was on the way to pick her up from the apartment. And he got there and said, oh, wow, there's something going on over here in Springfield. And and I don't know what it is, but there's lots of cops. There's lots of ambulances. I'm not quite sure. And I remember just feeling this sinking feeling in my in like my heart just dropped out of me. And I just knew. And I literally got in my car. It was February. I didn't even put shoes on drove around to all the places where I thought he could be. I'd gone through my whole Rolodex of possibilities. I drove up the hill to the hospital, and I remember the moment that I saw his mother standing in the parking lot of the hospital. This was a person who was not just my best friend, but he was the person I thought I was going to marry, that I thought I was going to have children with. Losing him, it's uh, been a little over five months now, 
it completely derailed this whole plan I had in my head for how my life was going to go. I, I felt like my entire life had been just completely destroyed in the matter of an hour and a half morning. There aren't words. But now that I've had time to think about it, this was a very, this was always a very good possibility as an ending, whether it be me or him. I've had people tell me, and I've heard people say this idea of if someone gets in involved in drugs, it's their fault, and we don't need to provide support with these people, you know, basically just let them die. I mean, what, what do you say to someone who says that? I say if you don't if you have never experienced it you you don't understand the way that your your brain flips a switch. And I I firmly believe that there was almost no way I was not going to get addicted to heroin. I made a choice the first time I tried it. That's absolutely true. But from then on my brain's doing its own thing. It it will find any reason to justify or tell me that this is the way to handle things, that doing heroin or doing other drugs or getting drunk was the way to handle things. And I absolutely felt like I had no control over myself. And the perfect example of this is uh, just a couple weeks ago, unfortunately, I found a, an empty heroin bag in my car a couple weeks ago. And I brought it up into the house and I'm looking at my partner and I'm trying to work out like how long has this been in here? Like where did this come from? And I had this urge to open up the bag and see if there's anything left on the inside. And I looked at my partner and I was like, you're going to need to take this from me because I knew that if I put the trust in myself to get rid of it, it wasn't going to happen or there was a possibility that it wasn't going to happen. But you have to remind yourself that any situation that could be complicated or put you at risk, it's your responsibility to avoid it. <laughs> I think the hardest thing now is that uh, is the judgment that comes with being an addict and how everybody assumes once they know it about you that it's just a matter of time before it happens again. And most of these drugs completely rewire your brain. Like I'm never going to feel the same amount of joy that I did the first time I did heroin. That is a scientific chemical fact. My brain cannot do it the same way. So it's reminding myself that I'm still capable of feeling happy and coping with difficult things and dealing with my life and being an adult without the use of drugs. So I have a lot of tattoos and two of my tattoos are serotonin and dopamine. And that's kind of my reminder to myself that almost every drug out there or substance that people use to alter their brain, your brain already makes it. So that's just my reminder to myself that everything I'm looking for is already in my head. That was an interview with Abby Holden as part of the series My Heart Still Beats from VPR and Writers for Recovery. As part of this podcast, Abby reads some of the poetry she wrote there. Let's listen. Mornings. Then. This tent is crazy hot. I know it is not even six, but the way the sunrise hits this beach, it only takes about 11 seconds before it feels 115 degrees in here. I cannot breathe through my nose, my head pounds, 
I have no idea how you're still sleeping. Then I remember it's barely been two hours since we went to sleep. More? My brain asks sweetly. A toddler with puppy dog eyes who wants another piece of cake. I know it will be your first thought. I start counting the money, pace our riverside beach, smoke a cigarette, swim, count the money again. Begin planning in my head. This much for gas, this much for smokes, this much for more. If we don't drive around when it's gone, forget the gas and get even more. More? It asks again hungrily. How are you still sleeping? It is a wonder I ever rest these days when I'm so filled with all this want. Another cigarette before I'm gently waking you. My desire is a chant now. More, more, more. One is too many, a thousand is never enough. Now. My eastward-facing bedroom window has blanketed me in early morning light. I watch the feathers from my dream catchers sway and dance in the sun. A sweet dog with floppy ears gives me a look that says, Mom, do we have to? No, baby, not just yet. For now, we will stay here, lay in the yellow light, smoke a cigarette, and think about how, when I'm ready to move, I'll make coffee and watch the dog find all the new smells in the yard, and consider the way that I'm not addiction-free, but I've chosen the lesser evils. Think about how now my nights are filled with painting, writing, and creating things, rather than wasted hours and money lost and friends I'll never get to soak in the light with again. That's Abby Holden reading from the series My Heart Still Beats. The series was produced by Gary Miller, along with Bess O'Brien and Erica Heilman. Music's by Brian Clark. The managing editor for podcasts is Angela Evansy, and it's all made possible by the VPR Innovation Fund. You can find a link to the full series at nextnewengland.org. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts, too. Just search for Next New England, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our program is produced by Lily Tyson. Carlos Mejia is the digital producer, and the executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Music this week comes from Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, and Jimily, and Muddy Ruckus. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public Radio.